The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His love that lasts forever know His hope and sure salvation I will trust in Him Oh, the world falls around me I rest and know that He has found me Christ, the rock, is my Welcome all to Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, Pastor is an acrostic which stands for Preaching All Salvation Through One Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome to Pastor Yeshua. In the first three episodes, we began to ask and answer one of many classical questions posed by atheists, secular humanists, the world, and sadly by many who should know better, but perhaps have never done their theological homework. In this case, the question asked was, if God is a God of love, then how could God order the killing of every Canaanite man, woman, and child? During part one, we discussed four issues, including the lack of intellectual sincerity, intellectual honesty, the hypocrisy, and the lack of ultimate authority possessed by atheists and secular humanists who are generally the ones asking these type questions. In episode 2, we discussed five issues, including God's sovereignty, God's property rights, God's justice, the importance of separation, and wartime ethics. 
In part three, we discussed three issues, including the need to understand the continuity and context of God's Word, intrusion ethics, as well as God's mercy. In this episode, we intend to continue answering our question as well as completing the accompanying discussion and study. As before, our goal is to come away with a better understanding of God's nature as well as our relationship to Him. Issue number 13. Issue number 13 deals with survival. Let's remember that during the Canaanite incident that Israel had just departed from about 400 years in bondage in Egypt. In doing so, estimates are that anywhere from 1 to 3 million people left Egypt and departed to inhabit the areas which God had promised them. The areas in question were inhabited by the Canaanites and others who had little, if any, plans to simply give Israel what God had provided for them. As previously discussed, the Canaanites and others had fully formed cultures which they were committed to. Anyone who would presume to dispossess them would face retaliation, war, and death. Neither would the Canaanites likely have been interested in converting to worship the God of Israel while forsaking the false gods that they worship. Put simply, it shouldn't take a genius to see that these two large groups of peoples with divergent cultures, lifestyles, and beliefs were not simply going to be able to peacefully live together in such tight quarters. In order to demonstrate the absurdity and danger of such a proposition, one need look no further than the current predicament of modern Israel versus its surrounding and coexisting competitors who largely consist of the religion Islam. The two have been at constant battle, war, retaliation, and strife for many centuries. There is scarcely a month, if not a day, that goes by where a bomb does not go off, a missile does not strike, someone is shot, beheaded, etc. Had Israel left Egypt and attempted to live in the promised land using the same folly as the world forces Israel to live with now, it is likely that the historical outcome of Israel's path would have been very different. Israel could not go into Canaan's land with good intentions, hopes, speeches, diversity training, civil discourse, bumper stickers reading coexist, and Joshua shedding tears while crying for everyone to just get along. The Canaanites and others of the region believed in blood retribution. If someone wronged them, they were bound by this custom to never rest until the wrong, perceived or otherwise, was avenged. 
Blood retribution practiced by ancient tribal culture required the Jewish armies to destroy not only the soldiers of their enemies, but their families as well. So long as one member of a family remained, that person was bound by cultural law to attempt retribution against the enemies of his people. Such unrest and hostility would have persisted throughout the nation's history with no possibility of peace in the land. Perhaps more important than physical survival was cultural and spiritual survival. Put simply, Israel was God's chosen people. There was and is a relationship held together by, if nothing else, God's faithfulness to his promises. God had promised Israel many things, including that they would be fruitful and multiply. They would inhabit the land that belonged to God, which he would give to Israel. And most importantly, that God would redeem his people from their sin. Not everyone who was Jewish or an Israelite would obtain these promises. But in order that God's word be fulfilled, God would ensure that there would always be a small but core group of his people in existence who would qualify. If Israel was going to survive in the promised land, it was necessary to dispossess or kill the inhabitants who were there. Why? God knew man's heart. He knows what our basic nature of sin can and will do, given circumstances and time. If Israel, who believed in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, had gone into Canaan, leaving the Canaanites and their religion intact, then the result would have been that Israel would have much sooner and fervently abandoned the God of the Bible to worship and serve the false gods and idols of the Canaanites. This is precisely the scenario God himself sees when he warns Israel in Exodus chapter 23, verses 32 and 33. Quote, Thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor with their gods. They shall not dwell in thy land, lest they make thee sin against me. For if thou serve their gods, it will surely be a snare unto thee. Unquote. So in the long run, God knew that the Canaanites would have conquered Israel by infecting and corrupting Israel with their immorality, rebellion, and sin. Thus, Israel would, in the end, have left the bondage of Egypt, only to have entered into another, far worse bondage under the immorality and perversity of the Canaanites. Worse yet, if and when Israel would reach the same level of immorality, perversity, rebellion, and sin, then God would have to destroy many of his own people. To avoid this situation worsening, God chose to destroy the source of the problem before it grew and eventually overtook Israel. Let's not kid ourselves. Israel was by no means perfect. 
but they were still spiritually healthy enough to save. Number 14. Issue number 14 deals with the messianic line. Lest we forget what atheists, skeptics, secular humanists, and the world miss entirely is that given man's departure in Genesis 3 into sin and separation from God, God planned and prepared to redeem man to himself through the propitiatory sacrifice of his son, Jesus, the Messiah, in the fullness of time. Once this plan was on the table, God and Satan were at war with earth, man, and all creation as the battleground. Satan knew God's proclamation of a Savior, the Messiah, Jesus. He knew that the Messiah would come, as promised, through the seed of the woman, Eve. Consequently, from the start, Satan had made every attempt possible to thwart, prolong, or prevent the coming Messiah. As we look at the history of Israel, the Jewish people, or God's people in general, we can ultimately see a spiritual battle waging between God and those who would be his people versus Satan and those in rebellion against God. In the case of the Canaanites, Satan already knew via the promise God had given Abraham that God intended to give Abraham's descendants the area called the Promised Land. So, immediately, Satan had two goals. One, to undermine and defeat God's promise to Abraham that his descendants would inherit the land. And to do this, Satan would either destroy Abraham and his descendants, or he could place what amounted to landmines in the territory in preparation in case his first plan failed. The Canaanites and other inhabitants of the Promised Land were the cultural and spiritual equivalent of booby traps waiting to corrupt, pervert, and ultimately destroy God's people Israel. 2. If, in any case, Satan could, by any means, physically and spiritually destroy Israel, then he could achieve an even greater, more important goal, which was to eliminate the messianic line leading to Jesus, the Christ, and to thus pervert and thus prevent God from fulfilling his promise to crush the head of the serpent, Satan. Thus again, when we look at the episode of the Canaanites, we need to step back and look at the overall picture of history. When we do so through the prism of God's word, using the spiritual discernment, we see more than simple cultural, geographical, political struggles. Instead, we can clearly see one of many ongoing battles which comprise the war between God and Satan. In this regard, we must remember that Satan does not have any sense of waging war according to the rules of the Geneva Convention. He does not have a moral compass, nor does he answer to the court of the world. 
Consequently, while abhorrent, Satan has and does use any means, including using men, women, and children, as witting and unwitting disposable tools to wage his war. In the end, the Canaanites were a group of witting or unwitting people who had been rebelling against God for many centuries. The Canaanites knew who Israel was and they knew their history. The Canaanites had heard of the miracles performed by God in Egypt and thus knew that God was leading and protecting Israel. Yet, despite all this and more, the Canaanites chose to continue, like Pharaoh, to harden their hearts. They had had every opportunity to repent and turn from their wickedness. Instead, like Pharaoh, they chose to rebel and take sides with Satan against God. If, in fact, we zoom out from the microcosm of the incident of the Canaanites, we see the larger battleground of the war still in progress since the beginning. As you may recall, Satan rebelled against God and took a third of the heavenly host with him. Satan and this host have been at war with God, man, and God's creation since the garden. People have been taking sides with one or the other since the inception of the war, and will continue to do so until Satan and his host are defeated and thrown into the lake of fire. Now, God desires fellowship with his creation, but God is not interested in forcing anyone to love and have fellowship with him. God wants willing participants who will love and serve him in spirit and in truth. The incident of the Canaanites is merely one of many such battles being waged, fought, and completed between God and Satan. Wherever and whenever these battles occur, there is always an outcome for man, both good and bad. What we must never forget or lose sight of is this. When we see triumph, victory, joy, and celebration is because God has drawn man in his grace to alignment, obedient, and faith in God and his will. When we see failure, suffering, loss, and death, it is because man has chosen to rebel against God's covering grace, love, and protection and instead has placed himself by his rebellion in alignment with Satan. The Canaanites were accountable to God in the same way as every other man. But, despite God manifesting and revealing himself to them, the Canaanites, like all of fallen man, choose to ignore, rebel, and continue their wickedness, idolatry, and other horrible acts. In doing so, they place themselves in defiance in the path of a righteous and holy God who was forced to judge them accordingly. This incident is no different 
than the events which happen every day within the macrocosm of human history. As with the Canaanites, the Israelites, the Gentiles, the church, mankind, et al., God is searching the heart of every man. God has placed a determinate period of time available for man throughout history, whereby each man and woman will have time in which to sincerely answer the question posed by Jesus. Quote, Whom do you say that I am? Unquote. When all is said and done, this question becomes the driving force behind why God has each and every one of us here on earth. If we are truly interested in answering this question correctly, then every other question in life will ultimately find an answer as a consequence. Number 15. Issue number 15 deals with the issue of the nature and the character of the Canaanite people. Now, it is usually considered in poor taste to make commentary on a group of people as a whole or as in general. From a humanistic standpoint, none of us have the perfect moral compass to do so. But, God is perfect and holy. As stated earlier, God sees the hearts, minds, and intents, singularly and corporately, of everyone throughout time. As such, we can read God's word and know that if God chooses to draw conclusions about a person or a group, he does so with complete knowledge and understanding and certitude of everything that person or group has, is, or will do throughout time. He is then in a position to pass perfect and just judgment upon that person or persons at will. Thus, we must study scripture honestly so we too know who the Canaanites were historically. In order to put things into perspective, it will be necessary to go beyond generalized descriptions typically given and to more specifically describe actual behavior. In order to do so, I would again give disclaimer that while the information and details are somewhat graphic, they are unfortunately required to offset and displace the stereotypical mischaracterization presented by the question posed in this episode. As such, I would give warning that the information presented in this episode requires the attention of a mature listener. To properly understand the situation of the Canaanites, we need to trace the beginnings found in Genesis. The Canaanites get their name from Canaan, who was the son of Ham. As you may recall, we are introduced to Canaan in Genesis chapter 9, verses 22 through 27, where Canaan was cursed as a result of what his father, Ham, had done to Noah after the flood. Quote, and Ham, the father of Canaan, 
saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brethren without. And Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father and their faces were backward and they saw not their father's nakedness. And Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done unto him. And he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall be he be unto his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. God shall enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. Unquote. Now, the usual Sunday school explanation of this event is to say that Noah became intoxicated with wine, intentionally or otherwise, and fell asleep partially or completely naked. Sometime during his father's unconsciousness, Ham stumbled unwittingly upon Noah and saw his nakedness and went to tell his brothers what he had seen. Unfortunately, this explanation leaves the reader with an unnecessary confusion as to why Noah is so harsh in his condemnation and curse upon Ham, and in particular his descendants through Canaan. However, when we study scripture going forward, we discover that the phrases, quote, to see the nakedness of, unquote, and to, quote, uncover the nakedness of, unquote, are used repeatedly, no less than 17 times in Leviticus chapter 18 alone, by Moses himself, as an unmistakable euphemism for sexual intercourse. In specific, we find a direct correlation with Leviticus chapter 18, verse 7, which says, quote, You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness, unquote. In other words, a man's mother has a nakedness that is his father's nakedness. That is a nakedness that belongs to his father alone. He is not to, quote, uncover her nakedness, i.e. have sexual intercourse with her, because her sexuality, her nakedness, is to be reserved only for his father. Looking at this uh, issue in Leviticus, we sadly conclude that the most likely explanation of this event based upon a cultural understanding of the aforementioned phrase, is that Ham had unwanted sexual intercourse and committed incest with his mother, possibly in order to assert a leadership role in the family. The event between Ham and his mother likely produced Canaan, Sometime after this event, Noah discovered Ham's sin, possibly due to his wife's pregnancy 
or delivery of Canaan, which would tend to explain the curse upon Canaan. It is also perhaps not coincidental that the name Canaan has the root meaning, quote, to humiliate or to bring low, unquote. It is interesting to note that in the Babylonian Talmud, Pesachim 113b, we find what turns out to be the last will and testament of Canaan, which reads, quote, Five things did Canaan charge his sons. Love one another, love robbery, love lewdness, hate your masters, and do not speak the truth, unquote. As it turns out, these five points proved to be the modus operandi of the Canaanites for 3,000 years. As we continue the lineage, we, can, we discover that according to Genesis chapter 10, verses 15 through 18, quote, Canaan begat Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusite, and the Amorite, and the Girgashite, and the Hivite, and the Archite, and the Sinite, and the Arvadite, and the Semerite, and the Hamathite, and afterward were the families of the Canaanites spread abroad." Unquote. Later, Canaan and his descendants came to settle in the area generally extending from Lebanon toward the brook of Egypt in the south and the Jordan River Valley in the east, which occupies the same area that is occupied by modern Lebanon and Israel, plus parts of Jordan and Syria. This region later came to be known as the, quote, land of Canaan, Unquote. So, in some passages, the term Canaanites specifically refers to the people of the lowlands and plains of Canaan, as in Joshua chapter 11, verse 3. In other passages, Canaanites is used more broadly to refer to all the inhabitants of the land, including the Hivites, Girgashites, Jebusites, Amorites, Hittites, and Perizzites, as in Judges chapter 1, verses 9 through 10. Now, after the incident with Ham and Noah, Scripture says that Ham also begat several other sons, including Cush, Mizraim, and Phut. Cush begat Nimrod, and Nimrod founded the kingdom of Babel, along with the infamous Tower of Babel. For more information on the desperate wickedness which existed in Nimrod's day, I would direct those interested to the episode entitled The Tower of Babel. Later, in Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abraham out of Haran and commands him to move to a land which God will later show him. In verse 6, Abraham arrives at the plain of Morah, where it is said, quote, the Canaanite was then in the land, unquote. In verse 7, we find the following, quote, 
And the Lord appeared unto Abraham and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And there he builded an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. Unquote. So effectively, it is at this point that God decides to give his land, the land where the Canaanites are dwelling, to Abraham and to his descendants. Remember, if man makes the mistake of assuming he is autonomous, he may not agree with God's decision, but the entire earth, as well as this area, belongs to God and are governed unilaterally by his sovereignty so he can do what he pleases with it. Moving forward in chapter 13, Abraham and Lot separate due to strife between their respective herdsmen. In verses 12 and 13, we read, quote, Abraham dwelled in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelled in the city of the plain, and pitched his tent toward Sodom. But the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly." Unquote. Again, it is important to remember that historically and geographically, the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah, as well as the inhabitants of this area, were the descendants of Canaan, the son of Ham. These instances clearly show a pattern which is merely the beginning. In all, the Canaanites are mentioned over 150 times in the Bible. Time and time again, the commentary from God's word reveals that they were a wicked, idolatrous people. Now, given our modern times, our ears hear statements like someone is wicked, bad, or idolatrous, and some might be desensitized to the point where we come away thinking that that person went to Las Vegas for the weekend and got drunk, or that they didn't go to church on a regular basis. Uh, perhaps they were not family-oriented and liked to watch R-rated movies. Uh, some might be laboring under the illusion that the Canaanites were a completely innocent native culture, minding their own business, sitting around in quaint villages, living in peace, tranquility, harmony with nature and one another. Unfortunately, this is not the case. On the contrary, the Canaanite nations were horribly depraved. According to Leviticus chapter 18 verse 30, they practiced, quote, abominable customs, unquote. According to Deuteronomy chapter 18 verses 9 through 11, they did, quote, detestable things, unquote, including idolatry, witchcraft, soothsaying, sorcery, attempting to cast spells upon people, and calling up the dead. Uh, modern senses may again be numb to such loaded terms. Some may see these things as bearing little difference to the society of today's cavalier and liberal attitude toward religion and beliefs in general. 
But when we examine the religious practices of the Canaanites more closely, when we do so, in our next episode, we see three primary deities who emerge, Baal, Ashtoreth, and Moloch. This concludes this episode. Please join me for part five. Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. Bye.